Can I get a show of hands real quick? How many of you guys have been looking forward to this Q&A time? Quite a few of you guys. We've never done this before on a Sunday morning at Freedom. Um, and I was really blessed. And I want to thank you guys for the questions that did come in. There were some really good ones. And I think if you're asking, most likely there's other people that have questions concerning the same. So I've asked our elder, Joel, to read the questions for us. So brother, as they pop up on the screen. Oh. We don't have the screen up here, but they're on the sides here if you want to read these questions for us. Is this mic on? Yep. Awesome. It is. So, Pastor, is there any sin that God will not forgive? Absolutely. You guys know what that is? We're all familiar with Matthew chapter 12, right? I think it's in verse 30 and on. Okay? We can sin, and there are sins that are forgivable, but there's one. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we're told there. And I encourage you guys, you know, to really read that passage of scripture. What's the context? And the context is there is forgiveness in Christ, but if you reject Jesus, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to testify of him to convict the world of their need of a savior. But if you reject him, you won't listen to him. Yeah, you're in your sin and you can't be forgiven. We need to respond to him. But I think there's a great scripture. Let's turn to 1 Timothy together. Chapter 1, right in the beginning, it's a letter to young Timothy as a pastor from the Apostle Paul, who was a father in the faith to him. And Paul writes to him in verse... Verse 15, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is why Jesus came, guys, to save sinners. Is there any sin so bad? There's not. That's why he came. doesn't matter if you're a little sinner or a big sinner. He came to save all sinners. Do you understand that? And I love it. I mean, if he met Paul and saved Saul, Paul, a man who was killing God's children, Christians, people who've come to faith, who are following Jesus faithfully to the death, to have them martyred or thrown in prison, the chief of sinners, if God can meet with him and save him, can he save anybody? Absolutely. Good question. Next question. Pastor, we've often heard that all religions have the same God. Is that true? <laughs> no. I have some friends who are leaders in churches who would say it is all the same. Um, let's turn to Acts chapter 17 together. You guys remember the Apostle Paul? He was there in Thessalonica, and then he went to uh, Berea. And while he was in Berea, he found them there more fair-minded than the others because they received the word of God and they were ready to go back and search the scriptures to find out whether or not the things he was preaching were so. That's something we need to do. But we also find in Acts chapter 17, if I can find Acts 17, um, he lands in Athens at the last part of the chapter. And let's pick it up in verse 16. And again, the question being, do all religions have the same God? There are a lot of people. How many of you guys know someone that actually believes that? That there's all paths that lead to heaven. You can have your God. I can have my God. We're all going to end up in heaven one way or another. 
Lots of people believe that. God is declared quite differently throughout the scriptures. But I love Paul as he is ministering there in Athens because the Athens, the people there, they were very religious. They were deep thinkers. They received and accepted many different gods and different beliefs um, in that day. And we're told in verse 16, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. So there was a lot of idolatry, a lot of different types of worship taking place. Jump down to verse 22. And then Paul stood in the midst of them and their apocalypse there and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and I was considering the objects of your worship. And even I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And then jump down to verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance, your idolatry, this worship of all these different gods, thinking you're all okay, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he ordained he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead paul's making it clear it is one god it is jesus you need to turn to him okay and i love that paul lays this out in the way in the manner in which he did there in Athens. And the Bible is very clear. There's one way to the Father. It's through Jesus Christ, John 14, 6, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we have many today, guys, that believe there's many ways and we're willing to accept everything, but there's quite a hostility when it comes to Jesus. And it's because he's proclaimed that he alone is God and there is no other Savior but him. So. Amen. Anything you guys want to add? Elders, you guys can pipe in at any time. All right, just shout out if something else comes to mind. Pastor, does God ever speak to you when you're praying? Yes, he does. And he speaks through his word. How many of you guys take time when you're, you're having your prayer, your devotion time, actually to be praying scripture? You pray over the word of God. Yeah, there's times, let's turn to Hebrews chapter one. There's a lot of times when I'm praying you know, I can get through my list of petitions and praise in a few minutes. I'm like, oh, but I want to pray a little longer, Lord. I'm already done with what I have to say. But there's times when I'm just reading the word and praying the word of God. Man, my prayer time can go on for an hour or longer. And I think it's a good habit for us as believers to be in the word, praying the word of God. And I see here in Hebrews, because a lot of people, well, doesn't God speak to you? You know, does he audibly speak to you? And we're told how God speaks to us. Um, we're told, I'm almost there. There we go. Let's pick it up right in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. This is how God speaks to us today. It says, God who at various times and in various ways in time past, okay, spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, 
and through whom also he made all the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged out sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I think, uh, I think it's neat because Hebrews later goes on to tell us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He's at the right hand of the Father praying on our behalf. And he is our mediator, as Timothy tells us, between God and us. It's not Mary. It's not a different saint. It is God himself who's there. We get to speak directly to him. And how does he speak to us? He's spoken through his son, Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the Logos. And this is how he speaks to us. And I have a hard time when I have people say, hey, I was praying the other day, Pastor, and the Lord told me this. Great. How did the Lord speak that to you? You know, there is that small, still voice. There is the word of God. But I have a hard time when somebody tells me something that contradicts how Jesus has spoken through his word. He is the word. And if there's anything we're hearing that's contrary to this, it's not God, guys. He will never, ever contradict himself. So... Good question. That was a good question. Yeah. Pastor Landon, who wrote the Bible? <laughs> um, turn to Second Timothy, chapter three, verse sixteen. All Scripture is given by God. Now, the Bible itself is sixty-six different books written by forty different authors over fifteen hundred years. But who wrote the Bible? Three different languages, three different continents. Who wrote the Bible? Peter told us men were moved by the Holy Spirit in speaking about the completion of the New Testament. That's how they received from the Lord, and they were writing down what they had been receiving from the Lord there. But the thing that's beautiful is we have Second uh, Timothy 3.16 here that says all Scripture is given by God or God breathe, okay, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete for every good work. Think about that, guys. All scripture is given by him. And that's why we don't ignore, you know, the whole of the scripture. We're starting Genesis this spring. We're going to go through the seven churches soon, and I'm excited to get into that. But we're going to get into Genesis. And some of you guys have been asking, really? It's kind of a hard book. That's a long book. Are we really going to do? Yeah, we believe Genesis, Exodus, the whole, all of the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament. It is all given by God, and it's all profitable. So take the word of God seriously. This, uh, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a Sunday we're going to be considering a little bit as we jump into studying the seven churches. We're going to lay out a vision for 2020, and we're going to be going through the Bible as a fellowship in one year. We're going to get a reading thing, and we're going to do it together. Why? Because it's all his word. It's all good. So who wrote the Bible? God. Awesome. <laughs> all right. Do you really have to go to church to be a Christian? Um, Hebrews chapter 10. Let's turn there. Do you have to go to church to be a Christian? I think a good question is, and this is a good question. Okay, how many of you guys know believers who don't go to church? They're not in fellowship right now. 
We know a lot of them. That grieves my heart as a pastor because I see the uniqueness of fellowship and what the Bible lays out. Like God has ordained the church, okay, to really fulfill his missions on earth. And we're called to encourage one another in the Lord. You know, and let me tell you what, I look forward to Sunday mornings or Bible studies, fellowship time with you guys because I get stirred up. And let me tell you what, this life is hard. <laughs> a week's a long time. I wish God said we had church every other day or something. That would be good. <laughs> but he knows what we need. In that regular gathering, I even consider the early church. You guys remember how they daily would get together from house to house? Why would they do that? Well, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. I'm going to turn there real quick because I don't want to misquote it. We'll pick it up in verse 24 for the context here. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love as we come together for the Christian to be in church, okay? Come together that we'll stir up love and we'll also stir up good works. In verse 25 is really what I want to look at. We're told here not to forsake, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. There are going to be those who don't gather in fellowship. But we're exhorted not to do that, and so much more as we see the day approaching. It's dark out there, guys. If we're going to take this instruction seriously, we should be discerning. Are we living in the last days? Well, yeah, things are coming together. We see the signs. It's going to happen, and even more as we see the day approaching. And I think this is a needed exhortation for the church today more than ever. Just consider in your lifetime, what is going on? Church numbers here are dropping. Why aren't people going to church like they used to? And there are so many excuses out there. I think it's just Satan getting in there. He wants to divide. He doesn't want people in fellowship to get stirred up in love and good works. And I think that's why it's really good for us as believers, especially to purpose, hey, I just go to church. This is what I do as a believer. It's because God's asked me to do it, and he knows what I need. And it's not always, brother and sister, about what you're going to get out of church. If you come, I hope it's good today, I hope I get this, I have this need, you're really missing the point. We gather together to do what? To stir each other up. Do you come hoping to stir, to give, to love? That should be our mentality in coming to church. I think when we do it God's way, it's beautiful. And just think, I know a lot of believers who aren't in a church at all right now. They believe, I hope they're saved. You know, do you have to be in church to be saved? I don't think so. But I think it's something you need to do as a believer because it's what God's asked us to do and he knows best. Amen? On a personal note, I can, I can comment that uh, all the services are online and you can watch them online. It isn't the same experience. It's awesome coming here and seeing my brothers and sisters and getting a hug and expressing love to one another. There's, there's really nothing like it. Yeah. Amen to that. It is. Yeah, can't wait. <laughs> yeah, that's good, brother. All right, next question. Pastor Landon, how will the world end? 
Let's turn to 2 Peter. Last thing the Apostle Peter wrote in his epistles, uh, he speaks to this. He speaks about the day of the Lord, and we find in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we be in holy conduct, in godliness, looking for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Wow, God promised never to flood the earth again. He will not destroy the earth that way again. Next time it's going to be with fire. All will be consumed. But we, what does that mean for us? It means we're looking for Jesus. We're looking for the new heaven, the new Jerusalem. It's going to be good. Awesome. Yeah. Good question. Pastor Landon, how much should I read the Bible? <laughs> Joel, for you personally, <laughs> you like to read. So. Um, turn with me just a few pages uh, back to 1 Peter um, chapter 2, verse 2. Great question. How, how much should I read the Bible? How many of you guys enjoy reading? How many of you guys have a hard time reading and don't really care for it? All right, so it's kind of split there, but we know that man shall not live on bread or bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So how does that look for you and I? And I love what Peter says here in chapter two, verse two of first Peter, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Okay. Now, is it the will of God that we are growing in him? Absolutely. Sanctification is a huge part of our lives. Jesus told us in John 17, 17, sanctify them by truth. My word is truth. So how much should I be in the word of God? How much should I be reading? Well, as a newborn babe desires the milk. Man, remember a little guys, there'd be times I'd have the bottle and they would just, it's just like, oh, this is so cute, so sweet. I love feeding my babies, you know? The bottle's gone already. I mean, they inhaled that thing, you know, and I think that's so important for us as believers, especially when we're new in the Lord, that we're inhaling the word of God as much as you can get. Just as much time as you take preparing a meal and then eating the meal and then cleaning up after yourselves just to feed yourselves physically, we need to be feeding ourselves spiritually, and that's how we do it with the word of God. I don't want to be legalistic about how much we read the word of God, but if we're taking that much time to physically take care of ourselves, we should be taking that much time, if not more, to take care of ourselves spiritually. And I think as we grow in the Lord, we move on from that milk we want the meat and the potatoes of the word of god and if you enjoy a good steak okay you want to enjoy it it takes a little time to sit down and to eat it in such a manner that you're able to fully enjoy it and brothers and sisters many of you have been in the lord for a while you're in a good bible teaching church okay 
Make sure that you've prioritized and carved out that time. I'm going to have time where I really get to sit in reason with the Lord to study out the scriptures. I want to be a 2 Timothy 2.15 Christian who is rightly dividing the word of truth, who is studying to show themselves approved to God. So it doesn't matter where you're at in the Lord. We should always be giving ourselves to the scriptures, to his word, and thank God that we have the privilege to actually have one of these books. There are many brothers and sisters in the world who lay down their life to get a hold of one of these. We've been blessed. And it's not a race. No. I mean, if you just read a chapter a day and then meditate, meditate on those things, you don't have to hurry through the entire Bible in a year just because. Yep. Praise God. Yep. Pastor, what is hell like? (laughs) It's hot. Um, (laughs) Let's turn. Um, Jesus talked about hell more than he did about heaven in the scriptures. Let's turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians. I think this is the best description um, that we have in the scriptures um, to what hell is like. I'm hoping never find out what hell is like. I know most do not desire to find out what hell is like. And the sad part is many are going to go there. Narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There's so many people out there. Well, God's a good God of love, then I'm going to go because he died for everybody. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? This Jesus, the Savior of the world. He's a good, loving God. Hasn't he saved us all? Okay. What he did on the cross, it is available to the whole world. But the, not the whole world receives that gift personally, guys. There are very few who do. There's very few who seek God. We're promised when you seek for him with all your heart, you're going to find him. How many unbelievers do you know that are truly seeking the Lord? I see a lot of non-believers seeking excuses, but they're not really seeking because when they do, they do fine. But in regards to hell, if you guys look at 2 Thessalonians verse. Uh, 9 of chapter 1 it says these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the lord and that is key to what hell is like and from the glory of his power so it's not just the reality of hell being outer darkness a consuming fire torture eternity of this happening but did you guys catch there it is this utter destruction but it's also the absence of of being in the presence of God. And I think that's going to be the worst part of hell for anybody is when they stand before their maker, they see the glory of God, and they now know they've been banished for all time. They will never, ever partake of him ever again. I think that's going to be the worst part of hell. I could have had him. I could have spent eternity with him. Perfect love, perfect love, holy, holy, holiness to partake of that and never have that chance again. That's going to be hell, guys. So that's why we pray for people to get saved. That's why we boldly share the gospel with people. They need to know this God. All right. Pastor, why is the Holy Spirit not mentioned when the Father and Son are? Ah, that's a good question. If you guys look right up at the beginning of this epistle, and you'll find this a lot, 
in a lot of the letters that were written to the churches, there's a, a greeting, a salutation, or a, a opening to them. And it says, in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the whole, and Jesus Christ. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit, does it? Does it ever say the Holy Spirit in an opening like that? Why is the Holy Spirit missing from that? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is a great question. Let's turn to John chapter 16 together. And we read here, Jesus actually tells us the work of the Holy Spirit, what he's to be about. We'll pick it up in verse 5. This is Jesus speaking. It says, But now I go to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, referring to the Holy Spirit here, he will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but I cannot bear them now. However, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. <coughs> and all the things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, as I said, he will take of what is mine, and he will declare it to you. So when we read these openings in these epistles, this peace and grace, where does this peace and grace come from, guys? It comes from God. And it's because of what Jesus has done that we can have peace and we can receive the grace of God. And what is the Holy Spirit's job? It's to point us to Jesus. He takes of what is Jesus and he declares it to us. It's not about the Holy Spirit. Okay, It's about God. And yes, the Holy Spirit's part of the Godhead, but his role, his job, what he does, he points us to Jesus. Does that make sense? Awesome. That's a good question. And there are very few scriptures where you find all three together. They are in there. These three are one. Okay. But we also see uh, the Holy Spirit at work throughout the scriptures. So he's definitely at work and has a purpose, but he's always pointing people to God. That's what he does. Next question. Pastor, how can a person know that they really are a Christian? It's a great question. You just have to feel it. If you feel that you're a Christian, you really are. <coughs> we can't go on our feelings, right? Okay? Because, man, the heart, it is wicked and deceitful above all things, the prophet Jeremiah tells us in chapter 23. We can't go on our feelings, guys. What do we go on? What are we told? Well, in Romans chapter 10, you guys can turn there if you'd like. But verses 9 and 10 tell us clearly how a person knows that they are truly saved, that they are truly a Christian in Christ. Okay, If you believe 
in your heart in the Lord Jesus that he really did die and he rose again and you confess with your mouth that he's Lord, you are saved. Are feelings involved in any of that? No. Are there any works associated in something you must do? Maybe getting wet, okay? giving enough money, doing enough charitable deeds to become a Christian. No, it's pretty clear. Do you truly believe? Are you able to confess that Jesus is Lord? Then you're saved. And God knows your heart, guys. Because there's a lot of people who give lip service. Well, I'm a Christian. I went to the church when I grew up. I live here in America. We're all Christians, aren't we? No. Okay? We can confess with our lips. We can say it. But God really knows the heart, guys. And he searches the heart. Do you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, the only way? Do you really believe that? Okay? I don't know. You can tell me you're a Christian. I don't know if you really are. Okay? We want to see fruit in each other's lives. But some of you guys are really new in the Lord. Okay? And there ain't fruit coming out yet. Lord willing, it'll come out soon. You know? But even in those fruits, there's still things that we can make look good and stuff. But is it really in the heart? All right? All right. Sorry, we're flying through. Do you guys know that each one of these questions, we could take a whole morning <laughs> and consider it, okay? Um, I'm hoping that we can get through the next few pretty quick, and then we can have some open questions for you guys. All right, next question. Pastor, if God made everything, who made God? <laughs> well, there was another God who came and made God. Well, who made that God? Do you guys understand how ridiculous that type of thinking is? But that's one of the many excuses non-believers have. And this is a question that comes up. But that's a good question. In the beginning, God created. Okay, he's the beginning and the end. Let's turn to the prophet Isaiah. He actually speaks to this quite nicely. Isaiah chapter 43, 43. And 45 is wonderful. You guys can read that later. He challenges other gods. But we're told here, because there is only one God, the prophet says this in Isaiah 43, verse 10, You're my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God formed nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Okay? And I love that he declared that in Isaiah. There's, it's me. Me alone. Always have been, always will be, there will be no other. Period. That's what God says on the matter. So I'm going to roll with what he says. Makes sense. Good. Good question, though. Here's a hard question. <laughs> Pastor, what, what is the age of accountability? And, and, and what is meant by that question? What, what is accountability? Yeah, how many of you guys have heard about the age of accountability before? Right? And isn't it awesome that there's so many scriptures that talk about that? There's not a single scripture that mentions the age of accountability. And where that thought comes from, I think is something that we just want to make answers for something the Bible doesn't really clarify. 
Not once in the New Testament do we find any scripture speaking to something like this. In the Old Testament, there are a couple random scriptures that are out there. I think of Leviticus 20, there's Jeremiah 19. You guys remember the false god Moloch, where they would come and sacrifice their children? Well, we're told by God that that was innocent blood. So are babies innocent? Are they without sin? Okay. Well, we're told we're born into this world with sin. Okay, we have sin in the womb. That's why we need a savior. Okay, and people want to reason through it. Well, okay, is there really sin until we knowingly know that we sin? Okay, again, I don't know because the Bible doesn't specifically speak to that. And I think that's why we wanted to want to cling to this age of accountability because we want to think all get to go to heaven. If a child dies, where are they? Did they go to heaven? Well, doesn't Corinthians tell us that the believing parent's going to sanctify their child? Sanctification is different than salvation. That's not what that passage is saying. We know King David said when his son had passed that he will see him again. David knew that he was going to heaven. He knew he'd be reunited with him again. So we have that scripture. But again, do we know for sure that innocent children, when they die, go to heaven we don't know that for sure and there's a lot of churches that believe this there's a lot of churches that are scared well we don't know what happens so we'll baptize them and if we baptize them then we know if something happens to them they're going to go to heaven for sure does the bible teach that anywhere in scripture no what we do know is the nature of god each one of us in this room i think would say our, our heart wants to say yeah every child would be with jesus in heaven Every single one of them. We would want to believe that because that's what we want. But is it what the Bible says? We can't speak to it because we don't know for sure. But we do know the, the, the nature of God. We know his attributes. We know that he is merciful and that he is just. So whatever happens to a child, we know it's going to be fair. Okay? I want to think every little child that's aborted is with Jesus. My heart grieves I think this whole thing that we're allowed to kill babies is the most ridiculous thing that's happening in our nation. A lot of you guys are like, why don't you talk about politics more? I don't really care about politics. We have a big problem. Until this problem is taken care of, I don't think any of this other stuff even matters. Okay, I'm going to vote one way because of this one issue. And it's sad sometimes the person I have to vote for because of this one issue. <laughs> but the bottom line is, we have babies being killed, and I want to hope that they're with the Lord. I don't know that for sure, but knowing him and knowing his heart, I think that they are with him. So I don't know. That's one of those questions. When the Bible doesn't speak to something, we can't take a hard stand and say there is an age of accountability because it's not in the Bible. And I know there's a lot of churches that stand on that and believe that, but you're adding to the scriptures, and that's a scary place to be in. That's a very honest answer. Yeah. I have one question on that. Could we say that the age of accountability is when we were saved? That's another way to Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people that reject. So, <laughs> and it's one of those things, it's hard to put an age on it. Because some of these churches that take a hard stance on this, they'll use the age of 12. Well, let me tell you what, I have children all under the age of 12 right now, and I believe that they are born again of the Spirit of God. So when does that age? And they didn't all happen at the same age, okay? There were different parts. And I've seen kids at a young age reject Christ 
So where is that? Is it the first moment that they have an acknowledgement of their sin? The first time that the Holy Spirit knocks on their heart and they say no to him? Again, we would be speaking to things that the scriptures don't speak to. Okay? All right? All right, let's move on. Pastor, did the Old Testament saints have the Holy Spirit? Um, let's turn to John 15 together. Uh, they did. Some. We were actually told that a few of them had the Holy Spirit. I perceive that the Holy Spirit is in you, Joseph. Okay? And there's a few in the Old Testament where we actually speak about the Holy Spirit being in a person. Is he in them the same way he is in us? Do you guys not know that you are the temple of the living God? Are we not told that? Is it Colossians 3.16? forget which verse it is, but it's a scripture. I don't always know the address, but it's there in the word of God. And he's not speaking you know, to you individually, he's speaking to the church. But those who make up the church okay, are those who have come to faith in Christ, who are born again of the Spirit, and were indwelt with the Spirit of God at that time. So the Spirit is in us, and that is very unique to this dispensation, to this New Testament. It was the promise of the New Covenant. So we are turning to, where did I say? John 15 speaks to it. Jesus again, and I just read to you guys from John 16, where Jesus laid out the work of the Holy Spirit, but we're going to go back uh, a few verses and look at verse 26 with me here. It says, but when the Holy Spirit comes... So this is something that's going to take place later. This is Jesus speaking 2,000 years ago. What he was about to do was going to conclude the Old Testament, everything that was required in the Old, how the Holy Spirit was working then, was going to change once he died and was buried and rose again. And he's saying here, when the, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And then again, as we read earlier there in chapter uh, 6, let's just look at verse 7 again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And verse 8 ties into that also. So there, Jesus is making very clear to you and I that the function, the working of the Holy Spirit was going to be different after he rises from the dead and ascends to the Father. The Spirit will come and he will be with us and he will teach us and he will be working in us and through us. And we see many examples of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person in the Old Testament where they would do great things for the Lord, empowered to do something, but then the Spirit would leave them for whatever different reasons. And there's a cry of King David, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. If you're born again of the Spirit of God, you are sealed with him. He is with you. You can grieve him, but he is with you you i think that is so cool so there is definitely a difference between the working of the spirit then and now he's always been at work though we see that all the way back in genesis chapter 1 verse 26 the holy spirit is right there in the first chapter of the bible so he's always been up to stuff awesome. all right next question burial or cremation does it matter what's biblical 
Well, nowhere in the New Testament is it forbidden. <laughs> so uh, this is a great question. I did a funeral this last week. I was asked Wednesday night by an, uh, a brother in the Lord. He came up to me. He doesn't ask a whole lot of questions, but this was his specific question. You know, is cremation wrong for a Christian? Again, the Bible doesn't speak to this. What do we see in Scripture? People are always buried. Okay, we see people put in a tomb or they're buried in a ground. The way the Jewish people would do it is they would wrap them up, prepare them for burial, and that's what it was. We have a couple Old Testament laws where people were to be burned to death, thievery, murder, different things there, but that's not the thought of cremation. Okay, But again, I've had some people come up to me and they're, they've taken a very hard stance on this. Again, the scriptures don't specifically speak to this nowhere are we commanded to be buried yes i'm just going to bring out job 19 yep 25 and 26 may i read it yep for i know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth and after my skin is destroyed this i know that in my flesh i shall see god yep so i plan on being cremated I'm going to have that verse, Lord willing, on my little urn. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. You know, and that is something people bring up often. You know, well, what's the difference? Aren't we just going to dissolve anyways once we're laid in the ground? And Job, I mean, that's the oldest book in the Bible. Obviously, his remains are completely gone by now. But these people would take a hard stance. Well, how is the resurrection of the body going to happen unless you're actually buried in intact there well ashes to ashes right dust to dust that's the reality of it and i think their view of god is really small god's not going to be able to resurrect you if you get cremated and how dare you pastor allow people to get cremated and stuff man your god is small if he can't take care of that <laughs> anyways how do you create adam how did adam get his body from the i mean yeah so I think it's a good question, and it is one that we search, search the scriptures on. Because if it was one of those things that is commanded, we should know. But I don't see any commandment in the scripture to burial alone. So, next question. I'll add that uh, around the time of Christ, most Hebrews were, when they passed away, as Pastor had said, they were, their bodies were prepared, and then they, their bodies spent about a year in the tomb while they decomposed. And because the tombs were a lot of times reused, they belonged to a family. The family would go in after a year and they would collect their bones. And they would put them in a box called an ossuary. That's O-S-S-U-A-R-Y. And, and then they would, they would leave them in the same tomb. An interesting archaeological find uh, came to light a few years ago called the James Ossuary. And it's a bone box that was found, and it literally has an inscription on the side that says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And uh, there's been a lot of work to try and disprove that this was indeed the ossuary of James, the brother of Christ. But so far, they've been unsuccessful. Pretty cool. I always tell my wife that I want to be cremated, but I don't want to end up on the fireplace mantle, because I know sooner <laughs> or later... I'd be in a Hoover vacuum cleaner bag, and I don't want that to happen. <laughs> oh, amen. All right, next question. So, Pastor, once a person is saved, are they always saved? 
Yes, this is a wonderful question, and there's been so much debate around this question over the centuries, so much ink spelt or spilt on this. I'd like us to turn to John chapter 10. There's a few things to consider. I look at salvation in Christ as not being temporary, but eternal. Is it not eternal life that he gives us? If you can lose your salvation, it was never eternal, right? That would have been only temporary. So Jesus, you're a liar, if that would be the case. So I believe in eternal security. And as we come to the scriptures, there is a lot to consider. Well, what about this scripture? What about that scripture? We don't want to ignore the word of God. We do want to consider the whole of scripture. And what does God say to those things? And there are warnings definitely in the scriptures about not forsaking our faith and walking away. Is that possible? I don't think so if you're truly born again. Here's a scripture that we find in John chapter 10. Uh, We'll jump down to verse 28. Jesus speaking, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Never. If you are born again of the Spirit of God, You've put your faith in him. You've been saved. Okay, Old things have passed away. All things become new. Regenerated. Adopted into his family. Okay, You will never perish. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Ain't going to happen. So it goes on to tell us then um, in verse 28, They're never going to perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That includes you. Well, can I choose to walk away from the Lord? No one. You're a no one. Okay, No one's going to snatch you out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And there's much the scriptures speak to. I think the last few verses in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, what's going to separate us from the love of God? Nothing. And that was written to believers. There's nothing that's able to do that. We can't lose our salvation. There's nothing that's going to kick you out of the family of God. You can't be born again and then unborn. That just doesn't make sense. The Bible doesn't speak to that anywhere we have ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 okay talking about being sealed with the holy spirit of promise we're sealed the deal's done it is over and then of course jude 24 you know um who's going to be able to keep us from stumbling well it's the lord you know even if we do stumble we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous it is his work okay So either you are or you aren't. And if you are able to walk away from the Lord, you are a bastard. That's what the scriptures say. You are an illegitimate child because whom the Lord loves, he will chasten. So if you've been able to walk away from Jesus Christ, you were never born again of the Spirit of God. Because let me tell you what, as a child of God, I've been disobedient and he's been faithful to spank my butt because I'm his kid. And if you are his kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He's not going to let you go. You may grieve his spirit. You may be, may be a naughty child. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you're not his child. That's what I believe. That's where we stand upon the word here at Freedom. It's pretty clear. It's one of those things that's really debated. 
but I think the scriptures are clear on it, guys. And we can look at a few scriptures here or there. They're warnings. It doesn't say specifically that you can lose your salvation. So be careful if you want to hang to a scripture here or there. It doesn't teach it. Is that adequate? That is. That's fair. All right. I appreciate that question because that is one that comes up quite a bit. And that's why we're not Arminians here at Freedom. The Arminius believes that you can lose your salvation. You have to ignore the word of God to come to that conclusion. Same thing with Calvinism. We're not Calvinists here because you have to ignore scriptures to come to those presuppositions. We're not willing to do that. We're going to take the whole of the scriptures. God is absolutely sovereign. We absolutely have free choice. And if you choose Jesus Christ freely, you're born again in the spirit of God and you're brought into his family and you have eternal life. Period. Amen. All right. Pastor in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, who specifically is Jesus speaking to? His disciples, right? You guys know the passage. In that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons, prophesied in your name, done all these miracles? And then Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So he's speaking of those who give lip service to knowing Jesus. Okay? Yeah, I believe he's the Lord, but they don't have a relationship with him. Never been born again. There's so many people in churches doing the good things, going through their rituals, doing their religion, that think that they are okay. But you got to know Jesus. That's the only thing that matters. So in light of that, let's turn to 2 Timothy. He speaks to that. And it's really neat if you guys consider... Um, that phrase, I never knew you, was something. Jesus was a rabbi, okay? He was a teacher. Many called him rabbi. He had followers, disciples. When a rabbi would say to you, I never knew you, that was the phraseology that would come around. (laughs) You're not cutting it. You're not a true follower. You're not a true believer. You're done. So by Jesus, the rabbi, speaking that to those men that day, they understood what he was proclaiming, okay? They weren't legit. So let's take a look together at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Wow. Pretty straightforward. God knows those who are his. Okay. What does that Do you mean, depart from your iniquity? Turn from sin. Aren't we called in the scriptures to repent and believe? So many people, oh, I hear the gospel. Jesus died on my behalf. Well, there is a call for us to turn from wickedness from evil, from the things of this world, and turn to him. We're called to repent and to believe. And I think if we truly believe, there's going to be a repenting. Okay? Not that we're perfect, because we're still going to sin. But even if we do sin, what? We have Jesus the advocate, the righteous. right? <laughs> He's our defense attorney there for us, and I love that. But there is a change, and there should be those things. Because, man, if I truly believe you're the Lord, that you're my Savior you're the one calling the shots now, and you've told me to depart from iniquity. Okay? Not that we're going to do that perfectly. We're still going to be tempted. We're still going to stumble at times. But
But do we repent? Do we turn back to Jesus? Are we asking for forgiveness? Are we crying out for help? Are we allowing His Holy Spirit to empower us, enable us? He always makes a way of escape. Okay? Do we take it when it's coming? I hope so. You know? So. Hallelujah. All right. A couple more questions here, and then we'll open it up for a couple. Pastor, why do Lutherans and Catholics, as well as others, baptize babies? Um, both, they're definitely distinctives that are very different between both uh, Catholics, Lutherans. There's a lot of Reformed theology out there. There's reasons why they'll baptize their babies. Catholics believe that we're unsure of what would happen to them if they die, but we need to have them baptized because if they get baptized, then they're a part of the church. And if they're baptized, that then allows the Holy Spirit and faith to be allowed to be worked in their lives, that they can grow to do good things to make sure that they get into heaven. So they believe that they're the only church and they have to be baptized into the Catholic Church in order for God to allow them to grow up to a place of really having faith and doing the good things necessary to get into the kingdom of God. Lutherans, on the other hand, don't believe that God loves everyone. Okay? I love my Lutheran brothers and sisters, okay, but they are heavily associated with what we would call Calvinists, that God only died for the elect, okay? And we can baptize our babies because we know that we are believers, and because we are believers, our children are automatically going to be believers, and we're just testifying by baptizing them in water that they are saved and going to be saved because they're one of God's chosen, okay? That's how they roll. And we were at a service uh, last year where we heard Lutheran Pat, or, uh, preacher actually say you're saved by baptism. So they put their stock not in Jesus Christ alone, but you have to have this work. If you're really saved, you're baptized. But Lutherans will also baptize adults. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that's a good point. They'll cling to one scripture there. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, you know? And then it goes on to say, I love the context because if you read the exact verse right after it, he who doesn't believe is condemned already, had nothing. It doesn't talk about the condemnation coming around being baptized or not. It comes back to around the part of believing. We get baptized because we want to honor God. It's something he's asked us to do. It's not for salvation. It's just, hey, I'm a believer. God's asked me to identify with him and I'm going public by being baptized. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a good point. And that's why we believe here at Freedom in the Believer's Baptism. Everywhere we see in Scripture, you believe first and then you're baptized. So why baptize a baby? They can't believe I'm all for baby dedications. We welcome them here. We do what Jesus did. Was Jesus baptized as a baby? No, okay? He was given to the Lord. He was dedicated to the Lord there. So we definitely want to be praying for parents, you know, who are raising their kids and be praying for our children that their hearts are open to the gospel. Yeah. 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 Amen. 
You know, the thief on the cross with Jesus promised to be in paradise. That's one scripture that they don't like coming up with, and it's wonderful how these guys who are advocates for baby baptism, you know, they twist scriptures and they excuse away so many examples. It's just one of those things, again, we can't ignore the word of God to cling to something that we believe. And when you put the church above Jesus Christ, okay, you take the free will of man away, you get false theology gets more false theology. And that's why we see babies, and it's sad, guys. I've sat in jail ministering to people of all faiths from all over the valley here. I did it for five years. And I honestly, I can't count how many told me, because it's a question I asked everybody I meet with, how do you know you're going to heaven? And so many of them, it doesn't matter what their denominational background, I know I'm going to heaven because I got baptized as a baby. My parents did that for me. It's like, wow, what a lie from the pit of hell. Okay, you're putting your hope in being baptized, getting wet, when the Bible is very clear that it is faith in Christ alone. Again, it's that personal relationship. Yeah, Heidi. No. That you would know? be called proxy baptism, and it's popular among Mormons. Mormons believe that uh, if I'm a Mormon believer, I can be baptized by proxy for my grandfather, my grandmother, anybody that had passed before me. I can be baptized on their behalf, and all of a sudden, boom, they've got salvation. Is that maybe why, what you're talking about? I think the bad part is, is the false hope that they cling to. There's many who were baptized. I was baptized as a baby. I got baptized as an adult after I believed. Okay, So it's one of those things, you believe and you get baptized, where it's bad is when you're clinging to that baptism as a baby for your salvation instead of clinging to Jesus alone for your salvation. So that's the danger of it. And I think sometimes I get questions, hey, I have family, okay, they are Catholic or whatever, and they're baptizing one of my nephews or nieces. I've been asked to come. Am I allowed to go? You know, should I even be participating in that? I would say to you, go. Be a light love on your family, and take the opportunity because it is probably the only religious thing that they do to speak the truth of the gospel to them in that. Just ask them the question, why are you having so-and-so baptized? <laughs> Doors open. <laughs> so, I would, I would add that there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, if somebody has a baby, it doesn't mean that the child has sinned or is guilty of anything in any way. It's just a, a result of a person's incorrect theology. Yep. Um, they, they, they may believe in baptismal regeneration. And like Pastor had said, that baptism was necessary in order for a person to become a child of God. But the Bible speaks directly to that. In uh, Acts chapter 8, the Apostle Paul wrote that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So if you've got the Spirit dwelling in you, you are the child of God. And if you look at Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. 
Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? So the point I'm making is that these people had the Spirit of God, and they were not yet baptized with water. They were believers. The Spirit of God was dwelling in them. Therefore, baptism is not necessary for salvation. It's something that we do out of obedience to Christ once we become a Christian. We accept him, we identify with him, but it doesn't save. So get baptized if you haven't. Last question, guys, and we're going to wrap up and eat cookies. So, <laughs> Pastor, how did, how did the Jews know that Jesus was claiming to be God when he said he was the Son of Man? Yeah, we hit on this last week, and I want to share to you guys, share with you Daniel chapter 7. And again, I referenced this last week, but we didn't stop and read it. And uh, Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man uh, in the New Testament. But we're told in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and there brought him near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. And all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And I love it because later in that chapter and previously in that chapter declares the Ancient of Days being God. Okay, And here, God gives to this Son of Man who came the right to the kingdom to rule and to establish and do all that. Really, Daniel laid out on many of the prophets of what the Messiah would do when he came. So it's one of those things I think Jesus was saying and referring to that because the Jews would understand, oh, our prophet said of the Ancient of Days speaking about the coming kingdom because they so badly wanted Jesus to establish his kingdom there. The ones who did believe he was the Messiah, you know, and pretty bummed out when he died instead of being become king of the nation. They were looking and hoping, but we know the fulfillment of the prophecies and we know that Christ will return and establish all those things. But I think it's really hanging on that scripture from Daniel associated with the Ancient of Days there proclaiming like, hey, this is the one that was foretold there by the prophet. And when Jesus was speaking and saying, hey, the Son of Man has come to do this and to do that, speaking to these different prophecies, I think the Jews automatically associated, oh, we know what you're saying. We know who you're declaring to be. Okay. Um, so these are great questions. Uh, we have run out of time. How many of you guys felt like this was beneficial this morning? This was our, cool. I think we might do this on a regular basis then. And you guys came up with some great questions. And I know there's probably a lot more, but why don't you jot them down, save them for next time, and we'll do it again.